All right, so let's begin. So I felt like it was appropriate to at least start with why Zephaniah. Um, And the reality is I didn't grow up listening to the Old Testament preached. And I don't know if it was preached and I just didn't hear it or if uh, it actually was never preached. Um, But I had a relatively low view of the Old Testament coming uh, coming to Calvary. Uh, and uh, during my time at Florida State, uh, the RUF minister at the time, J.R. Foster, uh, preached a series on the minor prophets, uh, one of which was Obadiah. And for the first time, I saw the significance of the minor prophets. I saw Christ in Obadiah. Um, and so that sent me on a mission to investigate minor prophets and uh, portions of the Old Testament that I had otherwise neglected uh, in my Christian life. Uh, So for me, this is personal, uh, but something happened earlier this year, specifically with Zephaniah, where uh, it, it made me dive into it again. I actually went to a PCA church in Atlanta while we were traveling. This is the church that my brother goes to. And the pastor preached on Zephaniah. Um, And he was in Zephaniah 3. And uh, he railed the congregation up one side and down the other, uh, calling the congregation an echo chamber of white people, essentially, um, for not listening to brothers and sisters of various sexual orientation, various gender identity issues, and it, it, was, it was basically a woke social gospel message. Uh, and I was hot under the collar about it uh, because of what the message was and then spent the next several months reading Zephaniah and thinking about Zephaniah, preaching Zephaniah to myself. Uh, and so that's what has brought me here today in a sense is I have a burden for this book. Not just because I heard it preached terribly, uh, but because the message is so, is so wonderful. Um, the Old Testament is a living parable, uh, and we see, in a sense, uh, everybody's familiar with types and shadows, uh, or the idea of types and shadows in the Old Testament, uh, but there's also a sense that those shadows, those types present... Uh, a completed picture. This is God's completed word, and they pre- they present a completed picture of Christ. Uh, but the Old Testament is also wonderfully expectant, pregnant with the hope of a king to rule God's people, and that's what we're going to see in Zephaniah. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit today about the background and what's going on in the history. I'm not a big history guy, so you're going to have to bear with me through it. Uh, But it's important to understand what's going on within the kingdom of Israel and around the kingdom of Israel in order to understand uh, Zephaniah. So uh, the whole book is about God's wrath and judgment, uh, which we need to understand if we're going to understand Christ's work. Uh, What what did Christ do on the cross? What's the significance of of Christ's uh, death? Uh, O. Palmer Robertson who I'm going to quote a lot because uh, out of the nine commentaries I've read at this point, uh, he has 
By the way, it's hard to find nine commentaries on Zephaniah. Uh, but it's, hard uh, to read nine it's yeah, well, you only really need one, I guess. Uh, and it's O. Palmer Robertson. He says Zephaniah presents a picture of covenantal judgment without rival anywhere in Scripture for its stark depiction of the terrors of the coming consummation. At the same time, his penetration into the love of God reaches dimensions that stagger the imagination. Even in, even in the context of coming devastation because of sin, the redeeming love of God for his people shall prevail. So, uh, it, I'm not telling you that this is the starkest depiction of the terrors of the coming consummation, unrivaled everywhere else in Scripture. That's O. Palmer Robertson. Uh, but that sentiment is echoed in in many of the of the commentaries on Zephaniah. So, what I'd like to do, if you brought your Bible, I hope you brought your Bibles, um, I'd like to work through the book. I'm not going to read the entire book. It's 53 verses. You can do that on your own. Uh, but I would like to work through the book a little bit. Today I want to give an overall picture, uh, because there are uh, the terrors of God's judgment is outlined throughout the book in each of these chapters. And I don't want to leave you without hope um, because, frankly, it's a hopeless situation is what's being described. So Zephaniah, it's right before Zechariah, right after Habakkuk. I know you all know where that one is. So chapter 1 is, and I'm, I'm going to break this up into three main sections, which uh, we'll look into in more detail over the next three weeks, hopefully depending on how long I take each day. Um, the first section is judgment and the need for repentance, chapter 1 through 2, verse 3. And so just reading a couple of verses so you can get the idea, I will, uh, this is verse 2 in chapter 1, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens. He goes on, verse 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children. So, he, go, he goes on. Uh, there's judgment all through chapter 1. And then we have a glimmer of hope at the beginning of chapter 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Uh, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. There's, not, there's a measure of uncertainty here even. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And we'll look at that more later. So all, of, uh, all the rest of chapter 2 is judgment on the nations around Israel, around Judah at this point. Uh, first to the west, uh, you have the Philistines and their destruction. Then in verse 8, uh, he goes to the east. Uh, and then the south in verse 12 with the Ethiopians, the Cushites. And then to the north, Assyria. Assyria was the dominant force in the land at this time. This is before the Babylonian invasion in 586. But this prophecy looks toward 586 and that Babylonian invasion. Um, and it is, it is looking toward that destruction. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of significance to uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And then we get to chapter 3. Uh, 
and there's more judgment. Surprise, surprise. Uh, So the first half of chapter 3 is about judgment on Israel, judgment on God's people um, for their unfaithfulness. Uh, Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until this verse 8, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And then, starting at verse 9, we see hope consummated, for I will restore the peoples of pure language. And he goes on from there, uh, all the way to verse 15. In verses 15 through 17, um, Palmer Robertson says directly, and then several other commentators allude to it, but verse 17 in particular is called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Uh, But I'll read 15 through 17. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your weak... Excuse me. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly. And it goes on from there. So this is sort of the structure of of Zephaniah and Zephaniah's prophecy. Um, The setting. Uh, The northern kingdom in 722, a hundred years earlier. Zephaniah is prophesying, we find out in verse 1 of chapter 1 during the reign of King Josiah. And there's an obvious question here that we'll address next week uh, about, wasn't King Josiah good? Wasn't he one of the good ones? He was the reforming king. That's when they found the law, right? Um, So why is this harsh judgment during a time when we have the reforming king? We have a good king. Um, So why the harsh judgment? Uh, and, there, and there's a good answer for that. But Judah, the southern kingdom, had seen, in the previous few generations, had seen the northern kingdom fall. They had seen the Assyrians haul off their brothers and sisters. Um, and uh, they saw very clearly God's judgment upon the northern kingdom. Uh, good King Hezekiah had ruled for 29 years. So this is four generations before Josiah. Um, and this was the time that Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah prophesied during Hezekiah's uh, rule. And then we had King Manasseh. So turn with me real quick to 2 Kings 21. I told you I wasn't going to give a super detailed history, but it is important to understand uh, where we are within redemptive history. And it's important to understand how wicked... Some of these men were, by the way, if you want to go back and see the northern kingdom fall, that starts in chapter 17, I believe. Um, so chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out. 
before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. These were places where they worshipped idols. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven, all the stars, and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He Also he made his son pass through the fire, practice soothsaying. By the way, the son passed through the fire, that's child sacrifice. Uh, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spirits and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, uh, of which the Lord had said to David and Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So there's Manasseh. Um, child sacrifice, setting up idols in God's house, uh, worshiping all the hosts of heaven, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, shedding innocent blood. If we go on to verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides his sin by which he had made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This is an evil king. And this is the sort of evil that was going on in Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, in the generations leading up to Josiah. So then we have Ammon. King Ammon after Manasseh. Manasseh dies and Ammon comes into the picture. He's 22 years old. Uh, He's killed by his servants within two years, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord just like his father. Uh, And he's replaced by the elders of Israel with King Josiah. Uh, So King Josiah, uh, at eight years old, uh, takes the throne in 640 B.C., So 722, the fall of the northern kingdom, now we're at 640, and we've had a whole lot of evil kings in Judah during this period of time. And Josiah is known as the reforming king uh, in part because uh, the law was discovered, and it's thought that this is the book of Deuteronomy, but uh, the law was discovered in 622 during his reign. Um, however, we also know from Second Chronicles that he began reforming the kingdom and tearing down the idols even before that book of the law was discovered in the eighth year of his reign. Uh, so that would be 632. Um, so Josiah was a good king. Um, there is a little bit of a debate about where Zephaniah fits in within the reign of King Josiah. Um, all we know is that Zephaniah wrote and prophesied during the reign of Josiah, but Josiah reigned for many years uh, until 609. So what is that, 31 years? Um, there's a little bit of debate, and I'm going to make the argument uh, probably next week uh, that Josiah wrote after the discovery of the or that Zephaniah prophesied after the discovery of the law. Um, and there's a reason for it, which we'll get into next week. 
but if, if you do research on your own, which I would encourage you to do, and I know one, at least one of you has already read Calvin on this, um, a lot of the older commentators, uh, they're in agreement that uh, Zephaniah prophesied prior to the discovery of the law, and all the newer commentators say that he prophesied after. Um, and we'll get into that more next week. Uh, but is this merely uh, a history lesson? Uh, is Zephaniah merely a history lesson? Absolutely not. Ian Duguid says, uh, God's immediate judgment on Judah in history provides a microcosm and foreshadowing of his coming final judgment on all flesh, the ultimate day of the Lord. So there are several prophets that are prophesying during this period of time. Uh, Isaiah came before um, and uh, Isaiah is gone at this point, but uh, we have Zephaniah, we have Habakkuk, uh, Nahum uh, at the at the around 609. Jeremiah comes on the scene and Jeremiah prophesies all the way to 586 when the Babylonians invade. <clears throat> so we have we have several prophets that are all prophesying at the same time so they're related. Uh, all these all these prophecies are related to one another. Um, in Jonah we learn uh, about the Lord's compassion for the world. In Nahum we learn about the reality of divine judgment on the world in two poems. Uh, the Lord Himself takes vengeance on His enemies uh, is the is the thrust of Nahum. Uh, by the way, uh, one commentator called Nahum the most useless book in the Old Testament, which I see as a challenge. Uh, and so uh, we may get into that a little more later. Also, uh, Habakkuk: um, How can a holy God interact uh, interact with, and how can believers live in a dark world? With persistent faith. Uh, the theme of Jeremiah is forgiveness is presented uh, and hope is mixed with judgment. So all of these books are about the judgment of God. Um, and not just the impending judgment of the Babylonians, but about the ultimate day of the Lord when, uh, when God, when King Christ will come and judge the sins of man. And then in Zephaniah, we learn about the hope of the world at the heart of world judgment. We see that the Lord Himself is the King of Israel in our midst. Um, there's something missing in these prophets around this time. The idea of the coming Messiah that is so prevalent that we're all familiar with in Isaiah uh, is not in any of these prophets. If you read Jeremiah, to a certain degree you see a little bit of it, the idea of a coming Davidic king. Uh, but you don't see that in Zephaniah. Um, you don't see that in Habakkuk. Um, it is, it's hopeless in a sense. Um, we don't have verses like Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's easy for us in... I'm sorry, guys, I can't read that clock back there. All right, we got a little time. It's easy for us to see, uh, uh, looking back on Isaiah, um, that we're talking about King Christ, uh, that we're talking about uh, Jesus, born of the virgin, uh, in, in Isaiah there. But remember that, that this southern kingdom had existed for 350 years 
uh, under one dynasty, under one Davidic uh, line. Uh, and th- that was their hope. They're all looking for a king. So when Josiah comes on board, and they're excited about it. They're looking for a Davidic king that's going to save God's people. That's the Messiah that they're looking for. And he dies, and they get another terrible king after Josiah, and then another terrible king after him. But this was, this, all of their hope was bound up in this, uh, in this king. Um, and so uh, we don't see this in, we don't see uh, this promise of a Messiah uh, in Zephaniah, Habakkuk, or Nahum. Um, to this end, Robertson says, Delusion with the historical experience of kingship in Israel appears to offer a realistic resolution to the problem. All three of these prophets labored after the depravities of Manasseh had uh, after the depravities of Manasseh had sealed the fate of the nation's future. No repentance could remove the stench of the abominations that had been practiced by Israel for over fifty years. So each of these prophets acknowledged the need for Israel to have a king. They all knew that Israel needed a Messiah. But in Zephaniah, you see something somewhat unique. Uh, You see Zephaniah saying, there is no king that is going to come and save Israel. All is lost. God himself is the only one that can come and save Israel. Um, God, God himself is the only one that can save his people. Not even good King Josiah. So, what we see is that the Lord Himself is the King of Israel in our midst. Let's go back to Zephaniah 3. By the way, the idea of the glory in our midst from Zechariah um, is also present here. The King in our midst. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Zephaniah is telling God's people at this time that it is God who will save, not another Davidic king. Um, not, Not another Josiah, not a Hezekiah, certainly not an Ammon, certainly not a Manasseh. Uh, but that it is God who will save. The Lord is in your midst. He shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God, it, the Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So we, we see that the Lord is the Mighty One to save. We see that it is the Lord your God in your midst that sings over you with joy. None but God will be king over his people. Salvation for God's people comes in direct relationship with the judgment of God's enemies. And those things might not seem as if they go together. However, they're married perfectly because it is Christ who in the end, we'll drink the full cup of God's wrath. So the wrath that we are seeing here, the utter destruction of the whole world, my determination is to gather the nations and my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devastated, devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That is the wrath of God that Christ took on, drinking the full cup of that wrath, for our sin. And it is none but Christ who will be king over his people. So that is the message of Zephaniah. 
And look at that. I didn't even go over. I'm a little short. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good. All right. Uh, so at this point, does anybody have any questions? No. Good. All right. Well, so let, let's pray and we'll go worship maybe a little early. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for this time to gather together and we're grateful for your people and your saints. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, as we look into this uh, somewhat terrifying uh, prophecy, uh, Father, that, that relates to us even today, uh, Father, that, that you would uh, gird up our hearts, uh, Father, cause us to look to Christ, uh, Father, as the author and protector of our uh, faith. Uh, Father, help us to uh, look to Jesus uh, in the midst of uh, the trial discussed in Zephaniah. Help us to, uh, to rest in Him. Uh, Father, in Your wrath, remember mercy. Uh, Father, for the work of Christ poured out on us. In Your name we pray. Amen.